Hi, this is David Frangioni, CEO and publisher of Modern Drummer Magazine. So excited about our new podcast, The Modern Drummer Podcast. This weekly podcast will bring Modern Drummer to life. Sit back and enjoy fresh, fun, and insightful conversations with today's top drummers, producers, musicians, beat makers, and craftsmen. Whether you're a professional, a hobbyist, drummer, musician, programmer, producer, or just love music, this show is for you. Every other week, the Modern Drummer Podcast will feature world-renowned producer, songwriter, and drummer, Narda Michael Walden. Narda Michael Walden's Upbeat is featured exclusively on the Modern Drummer Podcast. Hey, 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 this is Brother Narda Michael Walden for the beautiful, upbeat, modern drummer podcast we have going. We're so excited. It's got so much energy coming down. So many beautiful interviews from Will Calhoun to the great Billy Cobham and my man uh, from Slime and Family Stone, Gregory Cole. <laughs> oh, my God. And we have so many good things coming up in the future. But this week is a rock star legend who really whooped me, taught me, showed me when I was a kid uh, how it's done. His name is Carmine Apice. And I heard him with Vanilla Fudge, as so many of us have heard him with, with Vanilla Fudge. But the things he did magically with his foot, with his hand, with his spirit, and dynamics. Shit. Like that. You know what I mean? It could be really, really, really uh, powerful and then get really tiny, tiny, soft you know, in a whisper. And be funky and be rocky and take, you know, those classics of a Sydney Free, Why Don't You Babe, you know, from the Holland Ocean, Holland Supremes, and then flip it into a rock jam, a classic for all time. So I have so much love for Carmine and his work also with Jeff Beck, everything he's done with Rod Stewart, Do You Think I'm Sexy? So check out the interview coming up now with, uh, with the great, uh, Carmen Apice, my dear brother, my dear friend, and a true musician on the drums, and a, a rock star supreme. Carmine. Hey, dude. How you doing, man? <laughs> Good to see you. Wow, I, was, I should have wore one of my glitter outfits. Oh, yeah, it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, wore, I wore it for you because I knew you'd like it, man. Yeah, I do like it. <laughs> well, we have a show on Thursday, which I want you to do, and and every Thursday, what I do is I wear one of my old stage outfits, which have different glitter and all these, just for the hell of it, just for fun, you know? That's right. That's right. So they, so they can bust my chops about it on there. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's all good. Yeah, man. You're looking really well, man. Yeah, I feel good. I'm, uh, I'm here in my studio. I just built this little studio here. There's the drums. Wow. You know, I got the room mics in there next to the... Uh, the, the um, what do you call it? The treadmill and had all the gold records and all that stuff here. So I'm, uh, I'm great. So it's great to have a, a place where you can just walk in. The drums are set up. They're already mic'd. You turn on the computer and you're ready to rock. You know? Oh, yeah. Fantastic, man. I remember being in your house in uh, San Francisco years and years ago. You had the indoor pool and... Yeah. You had the studio, you had everything there. You still oh. in that place or not? You're no, not- no, we're not in that place. I have my great recording studio, Tarpan Studios, which I'm oh, in now. This is, your, I'm this in my is yours? Uh, yeah, great, I've, been yeah. Since, I've been in this studio since 85. Yeah, but the home beautiful. you came to was called Sacred Rock. Yeah, that was awesome, man. Yeah, it was an awesome was, time. Yeah, That was a lot of fun. Cool. Well, I just want to say hi, man, and thank you for your time. And hi, I want to no first problem. off start off by saying I just love you. I love your playing. I love your, your work. I love your heart. 
uh, your passion. Yeah. When I'm when I'm coming up, we heard Vanilla Fudge, man. That's the first time I'm hearing yeah. you, yeah. and I just have to, I have to say to you that you open the door wide open because of your interpretation of the song. For example, you know the the Supremes Jam, yeah. and and the people get ready by Curtis Mayfield. You put so much new life, yeah. and 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 the, uh, from a drumming standpoint, we were knocked out, and we're oh, still knocked out you. by you. Yeah. So that's all I want to say to you, man, from the very well, beginning. I, I, I sang that you. one, too. I sang yeah. that one. People can, you, can you, can you speak about that at all as we, as we begin to talk to you? Yeah, sure. Okay. So, well, those days started uh, in Long Island. There was a, a fad of doing what we call production numbers. Now, Leslie West was involved in a group called The Wait, The Vagrants. You had a group called The Illusion. You had... Uh, you know, a lot of the groups from that era were doing production numbers. Right. So we just happened that when I joined the Pigeons, they were called the Pigeons vanilla, instead of Vanilla Fudge. Yeah. They, they asked me to join because they wanted to do these production numbers and, and use more technical drumming parts. And they wanted a drummer who could sing. So I've been singing all my life. I've been saying doo-wop and, and subways of Brooklyn and all that stuff. And, and uh, I studied, you know, I, I learned technical i went to all the great books and then uh i started playing with them it's the first time i ever played with a bass player because my other bands had left hand bass on the keyboard you know mm -hmm. so when i started playing with tim bogart he was an amazing player and i said wow this, this band is amazing mark stein's vocals and his keyboard playing many great guitar player rhythm player a good singer so i i naturally went with them and we were doing all these different arrangements live but I did notice when certain songs were done, like we, you know, we used to take the lyric of the song and say, okay, set me free, why don't you, babe? Get out of my life, why don't you? you know, when you put yourself in that situation lyrically, the music didn't fit the lyrics. The lyrics are more hurting, as we say, hurting yeah. lyrics. Yeah, so we slowed it down, gave it that hurting, really, really, you know, like, what you would feel if you were feeling that. So we surrounded it with that music, with the lyrics and Mark Stein sang the hell out of it. Oh, yes. When, when we did People Get Ready, yeah. to me, it, sound, it was like gospel song. So what do you hear when, you know, at the time, gospel music was a, a, an organ yeah. and voices. So we did an intro, you know, and, and our whole thing with intros with crescendos and then shh, down to nothing where you could hear a pin drop. When we used to play live, when do people get ready or hang it on, we lose that one lonely note. You could hear a pin drop in the whole place, whether we're in a 500 seat place or a 5,000 or a 10,000 seat place. When we come down and is that one note, total quiet, you know, total quiet. And that's how we knew we had the audience in the palm of our hand because it was like, ah, then shh down to nothing, you know? So People Get Ready was done that way. All the songs, Eleanor Rigby. You know, Eleanor Rigby was like a great version by the Beatles, but we, we listened to the lyrics and it, it was like a, a haunting graveyard vibe. And that's what we did musically, you know? Yes. So that's what we did with Vanilla Fudge, you know? And, and in those days, we were no PA systems. So I had to play really hard and loud, which I didn't know I was creating something. I was just doing what I had to do. A right. lot of drummers in the day just didn't care. They just played 
you know, and they were drowned out by the amplifiers, but I wanted to be heard. Yeah. Because we had such cool parts, you know? Yes. I even put a microphone inside my bass drum and ran it into Tim Bogut's dual showman amplifier. Because we did a lot of R&B. And, you know, the bass and the bass drum were like, had to be tight. Right. And, and then when I, I went to a porn shop and I saw a, uh, that's P-A-W-N, by the way. Mm-hmm. That's, <laughs> that's, right. that's right. That's right. <laughs> I went and I found a Leedy Ludwig bass drum for $5. It was 26 by 15. So I said, wow, mm-hmm. maybe because it's bigger, it'll be louder. Mm-hmm. So I bought it. I recovered it, red sparkle myself, and it became louder. And I used that bass drum. And after we had started making the noise, we went to England. We were playing in the speakeasy where everybody would go there. Everybody was there the night we played. It was packed. You know, the Rolling Stones, Jeff Beck group, uh, Jimi Hendrix, The Who, everybody was there. Jim Capaldi, all the drummers came up to me and said, where did you get that bass drum? 26 <laughs> by 15. And it was loud and it sounded great. And I learned a trick from Dino Dinelli back in the day. where We didn't muffle drums in those days. We had two heads, full heads, no hole. We had ripped up newspaper inside. And that would muffle the sound. We even varnished the inside of the shell to cover up any pores, mm-hmm. and then any unwanted uh, uh, like noise or any unwanted frequencies that would ring out would be sucked up by the paper. But it wasn't muffled. It didn't sound like a couch mm-hmm. when you hit it. Okay. You know? So I've been using that. If you look in these bass drums, I got newspaper in. Wow. You know? And it, wow. it sounded great. So... So I got that 26 one. And when I got endorsed by Ludwig, I said, you know, the big bass drum worked. I'm going to get two bass drums. Mm-hmm. So I got 26 by 14s. I said, let me get oversized everything. Mm-hmm. So I got a 12 by 15 marching drum as my little Tom. And, and Ludwig put leg stands on it. You know, like they thought mm-hmm. it was going to be put on legs. Right. I put it on a snare stand. And I had a 16 by 18 floor and had a 22 bass drum over on its side with metal rim, like a rim like a tom. Mm -hmm. That was my big tom. And then I had a six and a half inch snare drum, the classical snare drum, chrome. And then I was endorsed by Pasty, so I got a gong. Yeah. You know, because, you know, Vanilla Fudge is doing all the symphonic stuff and a gong came in handy. And that drum kit was the first maple kit that Ludwig ever made. And you had to really pound on that kit to get the sound on because they were bigger. Let me, let me ask you, what I'm fascinated by at the time that you, when you got into it was so advanced. Like, for example, you had all the inside funk going on. Yeah, because I used to you, listen. Where did you get into all that? That's what I'm talking to you. Get, get you, you know, Bernard, come on. Bernard Purdy. Yes. Okay. Bernard Purdy, Motown. Right. Stacks. Right. I mean, my friend Dean Parrish, who I'm still friends with now, he had a, uh, he, he was, uh, he had a hit song. It was number 70 on the charts. The second song was called The Skate. Bernard Purdy played on it. And he went, boom, boom, ga, boom, jink, ga, chicka, boom, boom, ga, boom, jink, ga, boom, boom, ga, boom, boom, ba. And I said, what is that? So I immediately copped it. Mm-hmm. You know? Immediately. And immediately. <laughs> yeah, immediately. And, and then I started coming up with my own renditions of it. And then with the fudge, 
you know, I started coming up with different things based around that. You know, I go boom, boom, gotcha, boom, 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 you know, that kind of stuff. And then at the same time, I heard someone coming out of San Francisco, Gregorico, which lied. Yes. And Greg used to tell me how he used to listen to the fudge and he and how he got some of those things, those ideas for me. But then he did it his own way. Yeah. And he was awesome. I love Greg. We just talked to Greg two days ago. Yeah, I love Greg. He's, me he's, too, man. He's but, badass, man. This is what I love about this show. The people yeah. I love, I can talk to and get the inspiration from you. I'm so happy yeah. to be talking to you, yeah. man, because to me, the fact that you played the funk and rock so intently at that time, it's still yeah. living today. Yeah. That stuff is more, it's powerful. It, can, it will never die. It's so, the molecules of it are like, well, we got to have it. Yeah. We got to have yeah. it. And it'll never yeah. die. Yeah, people say, you know, well, well, you started this this whole heavy rock thing. And, and, you know, like, I thank him for it. But you know what? I did it out of necessity. There were no mic. There was no, there was no monitors in those days. You know, I remember when we toured with Hendrix, Vanilla Fudge and Hendrix. I had a dual showman amplifier. And I had a sure, little sure mixer with like, I think, five or six inputs. I had... Two bass drums, I had a, um, a snare drum, uh, two floors. I, I think that was it, right? No symbol into the mixer, mixer out into the dual showman amp. And I put the dual showman amps in front of the stage, right next to the voice of the theaters. So the drums would be heard. Yeah. Because in those days, you had a guy would have the, 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 the mixing board, which were knobs, on the side of the stage. So he'd run out to the middle listen to what he's doing, run back, turn the knob, run back to the middle. So it was like that. There was no boards out in the audience. There was no boards. There was no monitors. We had eight voices at the theaters. That was the, you play a 10, 15,000 seat venue. And that was your PA. No monitors. Right. You know? Mm-hmm. And I remember Mitch Mitchell would come up, hey, come on, you mind if I use your drum amps? I go, no, you could use them. So I let Mitch use my drum amps. You know, we, everybody was real tight. Yeah. You know, we all released records. We all went on tour. You know, all the, all the big groups that are legendary now. You know, Fudge with the Hendrix and the Cream and Janis Joplin and, uh, you know, everybody else. I mean, Sly and the Family Stone. We, we played gigs with them, I think, with BBA. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, it's just uh, great stuff. You know, Tower Power opened for, for BBA. 1973, Ooh. and that was. By the way, awesome. our, our our Rocco, the bass player, just passed away. Oh no! Really? Did you hear that news? Yeah, I, I didn't just, know. Yeah, what did die? What did die? I just, I don't know. It just happened. Boy, he was such a badass. Oh yes. Him and Dave, oh, man, were like, no man, what is it, baby? Oh, him, him and Dave, him and David, man. You Garibaldi told me he spent one year on the Stick and Troll first page. Just doing all those stick controls on the drums. Right, right. You know? This uh, out of your book, right? No, no, stick control. The original stick control, George uh, Lawrence Stone. Okay. The great book. Yeah, that well, everybody your, went to. Okay, but what about your book now? I know your book has been so instrumental there with everybody. Yeah, my, my book is still going. That matter of fact, uh, I just signed um, my whole catalog of books to um, Modern Drummer Publications, who you're doing this for. Oh. And uh, Dave Fangioni is a friend of mine. and. I hooked him up with my, my friend Dave Hakim, 
You know Dave Hakeem, right? I don't know if I do. I'm sorry. Yeah, you do. He used to run Warner Brothers uh, publications, DCI. Oh. He ran all that stuff. Okay. Samson. Anyway, he's running Modern Drums for him now, and he's my representative for my endorsements and my all my drum books. You know, beautiful, beautiful. So, so we're doing a whole new marketing plan for all my product, even the books that uh, have been out, not been out in a while. Like I have a hi hat book, which has over twelve thousand variations. Because what it is, it's like a, a bass drum and a snare drum, right? Thirty pages of bass drum and snare drum patterns. And then 30 pages of hi-hat rhythms. So like one page would be like chick, 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 and it has a cutout. So you take that thing, you cut it out, and you put it over the snare and bass drum. So you got all those snare and bass drum exercises with that one hi-hat rhythm. Mm -hmm. You turn the page, same thing, turn the page. So you got 30 pages you do with just that one page. And then you times that by... 30 pages of these overlays, mm -hmm. you know, so I released it in 1975, God, man. you know, and then it, then for some reason, uh, they, they took it off the market, which was too expensive mm -hmm. to make the overlays and stuff, you know, okay. but now with digital printing, it's a lot easier to do. So we're going to re-release that. And I got a reggae book. I have a double, uh, double feet book. I have a rudiments to rock book, which is a beginner book shows rudiments and all that. Uh, my realistic rock. Then I got a realistic rock for kids. It's a kids book. Beautiful. It has a cartoon versions of me. You know, that's wonderful. Funny. Let me ask you, going back when you were young, coming up, what was the what was the first book of that, that you learned to do your reading and your your rudiments? That first time Ted you, Reed, you into that Ted world? Reed syncopation. Okay. And that's who was your teacher? Book. Who was your teacher? I had a guy named Dick Bennett out of Brooklyn. Unfortunately, he passed away in March of the uh, virus. Uh, he taught my brother as well. Uh, he was a great, great teacher, and he was lefty. So you take that stick control book that has all the sticking in it. Well, he had to rewrite all his sticking with red, in left, starting with the left hand. So he rewrote the whole book like that. So when I go and I use his book, I see his all his red sticking. But he was a great jazz uh, big band drummer, you know, he'd be, we go down his basement, he had an old set of Ludwigs or a Slingerland, and he'd be, you know, we'd, we'd practice some songs, it'd be like, you know, and he that, you know, really taught us how to power a band, you know, but we went through all the books, I went through all the books, I went to Syncopation, I went to Chapin, I went to Stick Control, I went to the Gardner books, um, even Ted Reed Latin book. <clears throat> I just went to all the books that were cool at the time. And I would listen to Gene Cooper, Buddy Rich, Matt Troach, Joe Morello, uh, Wipeout, mm -hmm. you know, uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, Sandy Nelson, mm -hmm. Cozy Cole, you know, <laughs> all those guys. That's what I would listen to. Cozy, my, Cole, my Cozy Cole's Ringo's favorite drummer, by the way. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. he's good. He, yeah. He's He's, he was great. You know, Topsy, part two. Boom, 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 boom. Yeah. I used to practice all that stuff, you know? Was there anything coming up that gave you trouble that was like you had to really think about how to do certain things for the independency side of things? Well, probably <clears throat> the most trouble that happened, probably most people had, was the Chapin book. Yes. 
because you had to keep that ching, 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 and then do all the hand stuff. And then it got into hand and foot. It got to be hard. That's it right. Really hard. You know? That's right. And I became friends with Chapin, you know, and uh, that's why I got the idea of the hi-hat book. His second book had layovers, you know, made of plastic. And, uh, and he, he was an awesome guy. He was always practicing. Did, did you know, Jim? I, I met him at the NAMM show. Yeah. So I was, you know, in awe of him. And that yeah. book, the blue book, was the book yeah, when I'm 10 book. years old that, that I learned yeah. how to think independently. Yes. And I would yes. love you to speak to people who don't understand that. Yeah. How the brain can do four things playing the drums. If you sing like you do, you're, playing, you're doing five yeah. things. It's five. Talk, yeah. about, talk about independency, man. What a thing it is. It is unbelievable. I, I started teaching. I had a drum studio in 1971. I opened up in Long Island. I was the only one teaching modern rock kind of techniques coupled with the classics, mm-hmm. you know, and that's where I came up with the book and I tested it in my studio there. <clears throat> and we used to take a rock groove and like we used to do, my, my teacher took me through the Chapin book, righty, nice. and then some of it lefty, Ooh. you know, and Ooh. I did it to a point. I didn't master the whole book, but I did it to a point. So I, I took that concept to the, to my realistic rock book. So I would say, okay, let's do this regular way, meaning as written, eight notes. Let's say you go one, two, boom, bop, eight, you know, over there. Hi-hat and quarter notes, eight notes, and the and against that. So right there, you got four-way coordination. Mm-hmm. And then we switch around. Mm. Eight notes on the left hand, right hand on the snare, same bass drum, same hi-hat. So that's six ways to do one pattern. Then I go quarter notes forward, three ways with the hi-hat. Quarter notes backwards, three ways with the hi-hat. Then the ands, like Cobham, when he came out with that. Actually, Ringo, I think, was the first one to do that. Okay, okay. Back in the day. But, you know, I love Billy, and Billy's a good friend now. I still love Billy. Yeah. And uh, I remember when you replaced Billy with Ma Vishnu, you know, I go, who are they going to get to replace Billy? And they got you. And I met you. I remember when I first met you. You were like 24 years old, dude. Well, I was 21. But I did not replace Billy. Like, no one can replace Billy, man. Come on. Uh, well, I mean, you did. You did a fantastic job. Anyway, so I do the ends forward three ways with the hi-hat. Yeah. And the ends backward. That's 18 ways. Yeah. So that's what I put in the book. But yeah. there's more. I know. If you do eight notes on the hi-hat and you do the E's, it goes right into or you do the E-N, or you do the a one, a one, a two, like uh, Oakland Stroke, one, a two, you know? Yeah. So I went through all that. I ended up with 60 ways to do any drum pattern, you know? Wow. And I would teach this stuff, mm-hmm. you know? And uh, Bob Rondinelli, Joe Franco, uh, Joe Franco were a couple of my key students that went on to do what really well, and a few other ones, you know? But... Then I developed the book, and, the, and when the book came out, I was really good friends with Joe Morello. Oh. And, uh, and Joe was great. Everyone has problems with my name, a piece or apathy. And we used to do these Ludwig symposiums, which were like the rock fantasy camps of now. But I was always the only rock guy. Because in 1971, 72, no other rock guy was doing clinics. You know, I had, I had it all to myself. And Joe would go, hey, Apache, he called me. You know? <laughs> Yeah. You know, and he couldn't see well. You know, we became really good friends. Yeah. And the first time I, I did a symposium, I was replacing Joe for three days for Ludwig. And I went down early 
to, to meet Joe and everything. And I met Joe and, and then I'm watching Joe do a clinic, you know, at this symposium. I said, Carmine, why don't you come up and play? We'll do some fours. I'm going, oh, come up and play fours with Joe Morello. No way, right. you know. My little brother Vinny was 10 years old at the time. I took him with me yeah. to Florida. He was in Florida. Mm-hmm. And he's going, he's pulling on my pants. Go ahead, Carm, go ahead. I said, no, you go play with Joe Morello, Vinny. You know, so I ended up going. Yes. And I, I remember I sat down on the drum kit and there's Joe Morello on my right. My arms were shaking, you know, and... So he started, he started a tempo, you know, it was a jazz tempo. So I joined in because mm-hmm. you know, my teacher taught me that stuff. And I played jazz some gigs, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and then he took a four. And I was supposed to take a four. So he took a four. So I did a four. And I was doing a four. And I went, well, shh, shh, shh. And then he took a four. And he tried to do it. And he couldn't. Oh, no. I said, whoa, oh, that's interesting. I'm going to do that again. You I'm going to keep doing <laughs> I'm going to keep doing that. So I kept doing that. So after we finished. Joe said, that, that hi-hat thing was cool. What was that? You know? I said, yeah, I noticed you didn't know what it was. He goes, no, I didn't know what that was. I don't, never played that. Right. You know? So I taught him what it was, and then we became really good friends, you know? And uh, so I copped a lot of my ideas, like my time signature ideas from Joe. And he would tell me, when the book came out, I sold like 4,000 copies the first year. And he said, oh, man, that is huge. I said, really? I, mean, I was used to selling eight, nine hundred thousand records, right. you know. Right. And at the time, you know, BBA was out, and we we just went, you know, me and Jeff and Tim, and we had sold five hundred thousand records like that. So four hundred, four thousand books were like nothing. I remember I used to carry the books on tour before people had merchandise, and I used to sell them at the gigs, you know, mm-hmm. just to have somebody sign. I never autographed them or nothing like we do today, you yeah. know. But uh, and then. I said, wow, this is brilliant. And then that, and when I got that deal, I wrote it because I went to a Sam Ash music store and I saw a guy, I saw a book, it was by Joel Rothman. Joel, Joel Morello says, Joel Rothman has diarrhea of the pen. Okay. <laughs> That's terrible, you know, but it, That's it was true. He had so many books out and they were all mathematically correct, but not, not anything you could use to play with a band, you know? Yeah. So I saw this one book, Learn to Play Rock Drums, and it was 1971. I looked like a hippie, like uh, long hair, had the beads, and, you know. And this guy was on the cover of the book. He looked like Elvis Presley, hair combed back like 50s, holding the grip like this, going, learn to play rock drums. Yeah. I said, what is this? I looked at the material. It was terrible. I'm going to write a book, I said to myself. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I went on the road. I was with Cactus, and I, instead of getting involved in all the partying and hotel wrecking that we were doing in the day that we didn't know we paid for, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. I wrote for like an hour every night. I wrote the book. In 30 days, I wrote the book. Mm-hmm. So I gave it to my attorney, and I had a powerful attorney at the time. He had Vanilla Fudge, Rascals, Led Zeppelin, uh, um, Jimi Hendrix, he had everybody, you know, wow. he had everybody. Wow. So I gave him the book and he got a deal. I got a $500 advance. He said, which is, you know, 1972, $500 was probably worth like five grand today. Mm-hmm. He said, but that's not the good part about it. I said, what's the good part? Because you own the copyright. I don't even know what that meant. Right. I didn't even know what that meant until like years later. After that, that company folded that I was on, I went to another company and I was able to go to the company because I owned the copyright. 
Yeah. And ever since then, we've been doing deals yes. with Warner Brothers, with this guy that's now running modern drama. He was head of Warner Brothers. I did deals with him, you know, and the book made a lot of money and sold. Now I'm at 400,000 plus books. Beautiful, beautiful. You know, and it's still going and we're still coming up with new ideas to market it now on the internet and all that. Carmine, I'm just so taken by also the era when you came on, there was so much around you. Like you mentioned the Rascals, Dino. Yes. That yeah. guy was phenomenal as well. He was awesome. awesome. I mean, you mentioned, okay, Mitch Mitchell, another yeah. chop cat with all the- Great. Jazz cat. Jazz question. chops. My yeah. question is, speak about the time when you exploded, what was around you that okay. was like, you know, uh, yeah. had, had to be like eye-opening for you. Yeah, it Talk was. Talk about it anything was, you want to say. It, it was great. I mean, when, when I first met Dino, yeah. I was underage. I couldn't get in the Metropole in New York. Yeah. Dino was opening up for Gene Krupa. Oh, okay. And with his, he had a group called Ronnie Speaks and Yellrod, right? And I had to go in with my brother, my older brother's draft card, because in those days, it wasn't IDs with your picture. So I went in, I was watching Dino play, and I went, wow. And he, and he came up with this groove that, after he played, we talked, and that's when he told me about the bass drum sound. And he had this groove that went, you know, the, the shuffle on both hands. And went, wow, that is so cool. What is that? What were you playing? And either he wrote it out or I wrote it out as he mouthed it. But I went out of there with it written down. Mm-hmm. And I went home and I practiced. I got it down really well. And Dino was, you know, I was a fan of Dino at that yeah. point. He was like two or three years older than me. And then when he came out with the Rascals, I started hearing about the Rascals before I was even in Vanilla Fudge. And I went to see them at a, a, a couple of clubs and he was just awesome. Yeah. You know, he's playing, twirling the sticks, boom, 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 you know, boom, boom, yeah. boom, twirling, yeah. you know. His moves were like, you know, puppet-like moves, and he just looked so cool. He had the 24 by 14 bass drum. Sounded great. They had no bass player, so you really heard that bottom end ringing out from the bass drum. Yeah. And he really was amazing, you know? Yeah. And then after we made it, he was still with the Rascal, but then the Rascals got all poppy and stuff, so his, his stuff wasn't that great. Even though you can look at some of the videos now, Come On Up and a few other videos of him and he's, he's just like doing the symbols and <laughs> twirling and i saw them lately and you know, he kind of lost the fire but he's older i mean you understand that yeah but at the time you know and then we made it and i always loved mitch mitchell because yeah. he was he was like a jazz guy mm-hmm. in a rock world mm-hmm. you know he didn't play heavy mm-hmm. he didn't but he played like when when him and hendrix would go off noel was the guy that held it down and Mitch and Hendrix would go off, you know, like jazz guys would. Right. You know, Hendrix would be playing and Mitch would be following him. That's right. You know? That's and right. it was great. And Mitch yeah. was the nicest guy, really the nicest guy. I love Mitch. Yeah. And Noel, all those guys, and they're all gone. I, I knew Hendrix before he was Hendrix. We used to play in clubs in New York together. When Jimmy James and the, and the Blue Flames. <laughs> he was biting his guitar, you know, playing like that. And one time we went into a... Uh, um, Black prostitutes apartment together. We smoked some pot, and Jimmy's going, "I'm going to make it one day and get out of this." And we were looking up on the West Side, 77th and Broadway, which is now a very richy area. But at the time, it was terrible. I mean, it's getting back to that now, the way New York is going. But uh, 
next time I saw him was at the Speakeasy in London. He was Jimi Hendrix. And I knew he was Jimi Hendrix. When I first saw, I knew he was Jimmy James, I should say. When I first saw the first promotion, I seen him eating the guitar, playing with his oh. teeth. I knew that was Jimmy James. You know? And then I told him that when I met him, I said, hey, man, you remember we played together in, in New York? I told him that story. And he said, well, what are you doing here? I said, I'm playing with Vanilla Fudge. He goes, man, I love the fudge. I went, whoa, cool. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so that's so a pretty good uh, re-meet. How, how did your life change from struggling, trying to make it, playing, working, to all of a sudden you're now superstar? Was a, ma- a big thing for your head to go through? Uh, of course. I went to where mm-hmm. you go to hell, you know. Yeah. Because Ludwig was, Ludwig was on me to do clinics when I was with Vanilla Fudge. Right. You know? And I'd say, I don't want to do clinics, you know? I'm a rock star, you know? I mean, come on. I would drive home to my mother's house in my full stage gear. <laughs> right, 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 right. And I walk into the house and all the kids in the neighborhood, oh, come on, dear, you know? Yeah, yeah. I pull up with like an XKE or, or, or a 61 Jaguar Mach 9, look like a big old Rolls Royce, you know? <laughs> and I get out and I walk into the house. I'm wearing my velvet. Yeah, yeah, ridiculous, you know? <laughs> but, and then in 71... When I wrote the book, that's when Ludwig said to me, look, you got a book coming out. They would buy a thousand books a year if I would do clinics. So the clinics are like you go out and you play gigs to sell records. You do clinics to sell books. I said, okay. So I did the first one. The first one was a Sam Ash in Hempstead. I had 800 people at the clinic. You know? Beautiful. And I, Beautiful. I, I mean, I went around the world. I, I really... I really got into doing clinics. I mean, one time I did a clinic in Paris at 1,800 people in the theater. Wow. And I I carried around roadies. I did disappearing drum solos where puffs of smoke were coming out of the thing. And and when the smoke cleared, I'm gone, but the drums are playing. I reappear in the audience. You know, I made the clinic really an event. Houdini, uh, Houdini. Houdini, yeah. I was Houdini. I did, that in, I did that in Japan. I did that with BBA in Japan. Yeah. I did it with a group called Pearl in Japan in the 90s. But I did it on the clin- a whole clinic tour, sponsored by PV. And I had a truck. I had two roadies. I had my drums. I had stage gear. I had lights. I had uh, my big PV monitors. I had the PV PA system. It was like a gig. Yeah. And I would draw 500, 600, 700 people everywhere I went, sometimes 1,000 people. I had I got awards in New Zealand for having over a thousand people at a clinic there. I did a clinic in Tokyo. I had two thousand people, you know. And you know, I was like, I really had the market to myself, yeah. you know. The next guy that started doing clinics was Cozy Powell, you know. But he wasn't a study drummer. He didn't he didn't know the the uh, you know how to talk about eight notes and quarter notes and on the e's and on the us and you know. He just knew. He did it by feel. You mm-hmm. know? So he yeah. was Jeff's drummer. Then you went out to play with Jeff. So talk about yeah. your connection with, with Jeff. Well, well, that, well, that was the whole thing. That, well, yeah. Me and Cozy, we had this thing going because yeah. okay. uh, Cactus was supposed to be Jeff Beck, me, Tim Bogut, and Rod Stewart. Rod didn't want to work with Jeff because they had some problems. Okay. okay? So, okay. so we were going to work with Jeff, me, Tim, and, and Jeff, and then we were going to get a singer. The day before, two days before Jeff was coming to meet, us with our manager with Peter Grant, his manager. He got in a car wreck, as you know, he loves cars. You know, he had a car wreck 
And they said he won't be able to play or do anything for 18 months. Mm -hmm. So we had just finished breaking Vanilla Fudge up to do Cactus to do this. So we had no band. So our manager said, what do you want to do? You want to wait for Jeff? Or no? And Jeff wasn't that big yet. Okay. You know, he okay. just did those first two albums. Yeah. You know, they, they sold well, but you know, Vanilla Fudge was bigger than Jeff Beck. And we, on the, one of our last gigs, we did, he, he opened up for us with the Jeff Beck group at the Singer Bowl in New York. It was uh, 10 years after opening. Uh, actually, Edwin Hawkins Singers, No Happy Day, yeah. opened up 10 years after Jeff Beck group and Vanilla Fudge. But while Jeff Beck group was on, and that was the tour that I had gotten John Bonham, the same drum kit as mine, right? And he had two bass drums on that tour. So there were two Carmine drum sets up there. One was John's, one was mine. So um, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It wasn't two. It was my drum set up there that John went up and played. Yeah. And it was Jeff Beck's drum set. But while, Zeppelin, while Jeff Beck was on, Zeppelin went up and jammed with them. And they were like the hottest thing. And we had to follow that. Mm-hmm. And that's when we realized, you know, that this, there's a new thing going on with guitars and singers that we didn't have with Vanilla Fudge, you know. Okay. So we'll stop anyway, right there we, because check it out. John Bonham is credited you as a big inspiration influence upon him. Yes, that's because yeah, a lot we of us don't know that. A lot of yeah. us don't know that. We don't. We don't well, think what John Bonham is like looking to you, but in fact, yeah. that's how it worked out. Well, I mean. I, John, I was one of his influences, as, as he told me. And if you read this book, Thunder of Drums, okay. you read that when he came on the first tour with us and I, I called up Ludwig to get him his drum set because I took him under my wing because he was an unknown guy and he was awesome. I mean, his right foot, I said, man, I love that right foot, mm-hmm. that triplet. He goes, he said, man, I got that from you. I said, I don't do that. And he pointed out on one of my records yeah. where I did it yeah. once. I went, bop, bop, bop. I didn't go, I went, so he took that and did it his way. As Joe Morello said, we all steal from each other. Nobody has it all, you know? So so I said, oh, great, man. And he showed me on my record where I did. I can't remember what record is now. That was 50 years ago, Mm -hmm. you know? But but in the Thunder of Drums, it says that when he came back off that first tour, he was friends with Cozy. And him and Cozy, he was... Cozy was on. What was it like? How, how was Carmine there? They were like two kids, you know? Yeah. And that, so, so I know I influenced Cozy. So anyway, so when Jeff didn't make that, me and Tim said, Let, well, let's do Cactus anyway. We've got Jim McCarty, who's an awesome player. Mitch Ryder in Detroit Wheels, Buddy Miles Express. You know, great player. Ooh. And we got Rusty Day from the Amboy Dukes. And we put another kind of super group together with Cactus. Mm-hmm. And we did fine. And two years later... Jeff put his band together with Cozy. And then six months later, he called me and Tim and asked us if we want to, you know, come out with him again. Mm-hmm. And that's when we went. Mm-hmm. So I said to Cozy, oh, so you replaced me in Jeff, with Jeff. <laughs> Years later, 76, I get asked to join Rainbow. I couldn't do it because I was playing with Mike Bloomfield in a group called KGB, signed to MCA Records. In those days, you can't be signed to a label and go play with somebody else. Right, right. You just couldn't do it. So I had to say no. So they got cozy. Mm-hmm. So when I even meet cozy, I say, what are you, my professional replacement? What's with you? <laughs> you know, I bust his chops a little bit. You know, we were friends. We both laughed, yeah. you know, but, uh, you know, so it was great times though, because 
you know, I mean, even watching Ginger Baker was double praise. Keith Moon, we're friends with Keith. Keith was the most unorthodox player. Never had a high hat. He he overplay, but he overplayed was his style. It was great, you know, his energy, and he was a crazy man. I mean, I've seen him do crazy things. Yeah. Like, like Tony Williams' lifetime, yeah. McLaughlin, yeah. Jack Bruce, yeah. Stuart Young, is that the keyboard player? Larry Young. Larry Young. Yeah. And Tony at yeah. Ungano's, a club in New York. Okay. And we're, everybody's watching, they're blowing everybody's mind. What, is, what does Keith do? Goes to the side of the stage, pulls his pants down, and walks right across the front of the stage. I did not know that. And we went, whoa, mm -hmm. what was that? You know? <laughs> and like Keith was just like, like nothing happened, pulled his pants up, went on, had another drink. Wow. Just crazy stuff like that, yeah. you know, off the wall stuff. Yeah. I had a drum battle with him once on a console TV set at the Beverly Hilton Hotel. He turned it over on its side. Come on, come on, here's some sticks. Let's, let's do a little drum battle, you know, and he stopped playing. He goes, now you. Okay. See all the stick marks on the, on the, it's a piece of furniture in those days. It wasn't like, you know, it was, it was, it was a cabinet, a beautifully painted cabinet. <laughs> but it was, it was crazy days. I tell you, yeah. man, I, in watching him now, when I look back, he was really a strong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He had Powerful. stamina. He could he rock for a long time. Even, he did, but he didn't play hard. But he played but he a lot. Had it. He had it. Yeah. I was like, he Whoa. had it. He had it. Yeah. I love Keith. I always say the first, the first uh, wave of that era was uh, with me, Ginger Baker, Mitch Mitchell, and Keith. That was the first wave of like drum heroes. Even though Dino was there, was sort of a drum hero, but he never. He he became more of a pop hero, you know. Even though about, I, okay, I consider him a drum, drum hero. What about from Iron Maiden? Aniko, where would he be? Oh, oh this is, these are in different generations. Got it, so. okay, okay. Then the okay. next generation, I think, okay. was the Billy Cobham, 72. Oh, okay. Yeah, this was 67, gotcha. right? Okay. 67 went up to like 72 when Cobham, Lenny White, Alphonse Mazzone, that whole era came out. So then, what did you think that's about when that? That's when you came when, in. When those cats hit. Awesome. What you about when I first heard Billy, because I was doing a lot of stuff, I, I was doing, uh, yeah, I'm hitting you fire on that. When I was, I was doing stuff where I'd play my right hand playing things like, you know, number six in the uh, stick control book, right, left, left, right, left, right, right, left. You know, I was basing the rhythm off the, even though I, I just played it, I didn't think of what I was playing. But I was playing, you know, with Bella the Symbol and all that. When I heard Billy, I said, man, that sounds like me on 78. You know, yeah. really fast. Mm -hmm. And I just forget about it. When Ma Vista came out that in the Mountain Flame, I was just blown away. I was like, it. Whenever they played in New York, I was there. Now, I met Billy and I met Billy when he was in Dreams. I love that band too. Yeah, they opened up for us with Cactus. Mm -hmm. And I met Billy, he had 24 bass drums. And he was, he was a monster. So I met him then. So when I heard him with my vision, he was really, you know, Dreams was more, more jazzy, mm -hmm. you know. But my vision had that jazz rock, you know. They had that funk jazz rock in there, you know. And then when Billy did his own albums, you know, forget it. I loved it. 
That's when you went. And I loved it when you joined. Oh, now, Ma Vishal was my, one of my favorite bands. Okay, so that's the 72 yeah. era. And then, you know, you were, you were like at the tail end of that. Mm-hmm. And then, 78, the police, Stewart, you know, and that whole era of 78, which was like, there were some other guys in that, that era came out. And that whole reggae thing started. I said, wow, that is so cool. He was, that was my favorite band. Wow. You know, Sting is my were, friend. He's a good man. And I hung out with him at his house. He's, yeah. So, man, that's a, that's a snare drum I played on that every, every breath you take. Sit down and play it. I'll be playing it. And say, you know, he's behind me playing kungas. And, you know, he's a good guy. Really yeah. a fun guy. You know, and, the video is where, they, is where Stuart Copeland cut Rumblefish. So he's, that's, where, that's where he recorded. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, that was a whole, the next realm, you know. And then the, the 80s came around and it was like people like uh, my brother came up and you know, he was, he started playing really great. Can I cut and, you right there? Yeah. I just watched this morning, just kind of refresh my brain uh, on YouTube. I saw a piece of you and Vinny playing together. And I'm so, yeah. I always knew he was great. Your brother as yeah. well. Yeah, but there's a piece that's on YouTube right now of the two of you just playing together. Yeah, yeah, it's phenomenal. We it's do gigs beautiful. called we do gigs called Drum Wars. Yeah, okay, it's beautiful. And we go out and we play our hits and we do the drum stuff in between. But it's great because he's more like Buddy Rich, really fast singles and combination. I'm more like the Gene Krupa, you know, more melodic, more showy, you know, and it works really great. But but you know, Vinny became an awesome drummer. He's an amazing drummer. And, and there's that whole 80s era. There were a lot of good drummers in that, that era, you know? I mean, Lars from Metallica, I, I believe he started a whole thing. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that, that death metal, that crunching <laughs> guitar sound. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what I consider heavy metal, mm-hmm. you know? With Lars doing that fast bass drum stuff. I mean, he was the first guy, you know, of that era. Then there was my brother with Black Sabbath and Dio and all that. And then, it, then Nico was playing with Pat Travers. And he was awesome. And then he played with uh, uh, with uh, Iron Maiden now, and he, he was always a really good player, a really great player. And then you know, and then it just started getting lots and lots more because now you got all the everybody's doing clinics, you know. And then Steve Smith with Journey, but <laughs> but Steve, you know, Steve was so underplayed in Journey. I mean, Steve, I know you talked to him recently too. Yeah. I mean, he's he's the scientist. Oh yes, he is. He's the scientist. Like, you know, we all did that modern drummer festival. Yes. I engineered my own stuff in the studio here. The first time it was the first thing I did. Okay. I was very happy with the sound, and then we sent it in. So I didn't get to see it because uh, I couldn't get on. I don't know why. But all the passwords were messed up. And I, when it comes to passwords on the internet, I get frustrated. I go, I'm done. Right. right. So I still didn't see it. Right. But anyway, I have a video of what they put on, which they sent to me, Modern Drummer. So, so as it was going, I, I even forgot that it was on. And while I was trying to get on the damn thing, I get a text from Steve. Steve says, Carmen, I just watched your thing, man. What a great groove. Awesome, man. The combinations, the right, left, left, right. So I was talking about Neil. And, you know, when Neil told me he liked what I did on my song Lady by BBA, blah, blah, blah. So I said, oh, thanks, Steve, you know. And he once called me and said, you know what? I just finished listening to Vanilla Fudd's third album. And he said, everything John Bonham ever did is on that album. Wow. Steve said that to me. 
Wow. I yeah. said, wow, mm-hmm. coming from you, man. Thank mm-hmm. you so much. What a compliment, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And uh, so we've been good, good friends. Every time I'm in town when he's, he's playing, I, I try and go and see him. I mean, I see him do some of the tablet stuff there verbally mm-hmm. in between solo. I said, this guy's unbelievable, yeah. you know? Yeah. So Steve sent me what he did. Mm-hmm. On, I don't know if he saw it. He played a solo in 15 eighth and, and he counted it off. Right. So I was counting it as he was doing it. Got to the point where I, I couldn't even count anymore. He was so counter everything that was in my head for 15 eight that I, I lost it all. I couldn't I didn't even know where he was, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I, I text in the back. I said, dude, you are like the most incredible scientist, amazing drummer I've ever met. Wow. You know, I mean, you're, you're, he's just amazing. He really yeah. is. Yeah. Big love, big love. Now he's so he's in that '80s drum hero. You know, there's a lot of drum heroes in the '80s that came up. Speak to and the Neil. People. He got Neil. You know, Neil. He was in that '80s. Even though he started in the '70s, he didn't really get going until the '80s. You know. Speak to the people who don't understand how much power, heart power, love power, energy power goes into being a drummer, and how much it takes to be a drummer and to, to play a, right, a proper concert, which you've done over and over and over again, how much energy it takes. People don't really understand that. Can you speak about that? Uh, man, it takes a lot of energy. You know, when I, when I was young, like the solo you were looking at today, yeah, that was done in 1976. So what was I? I was 30 years old. And I, I'm looking, I go, man, I'm like a animal speed freak in that thing, you know? And, you know, I look at some of my old solos and like it, no, you know, it's hard to do when you get older. Like my age, I'm 73 now. You know, to play like that is difficult. I mean, I, I could play similar to it, but not like that, you know. But, you know, it just takes everything. You know, when you go on stage, when I go on stage, you know, uh, or I'm doing a performance, I just think of nothing but what I'm doing, you know. And uh, depending on what band I'm with, you know, like with Rod Stewart, you know, it took a lot of energy, but took more energy to play simple yeah, and play groove, mm. you know? So I would concentrate on the chicks in the front row and I'd pick different women to play to, mm-hmm. you know? And that would give you the inspiration if, you know, they're, they're, oh, yeah, you're looking at them, they, they, they feel the vibe. Yeah. You know, with, when you, with BBA, there was like guy freak, you know, with Jeff Beck, there's freaks in the audience, you know? air guitar and air drummers, you know, and you know, you pick a few out and you play to them, mm-hmm. you know? So I found that always helped getting my focus on what I needed to do on stage, right. you know? And, uh, you know, I still do that to a point, but, you know, you, you just go on the stage. It's like when you hit the stage, it's like a switch goes on. Here it comes. All the energy, all the power gets focused into that performance, you know? Now of late, because I'm older, when I come off the stage, I'm a bit like wobbly, you know, because of all the energy I put out, you know, yes. but uh, it's, you know, my father told me when I was, when he was 77 years old, he said, you know, my brain still feels 17. Yeah. But my body don't. Right. And I, I, I get that now. Mm-hmm. I understand because I still feel and want to do all these things and, yeah. and think about playing these things, doing and then I look at my body, I'm looking at my arms, I'm looking at wrinkles, I'm going, wow, when did this happen? Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. 
you know, so it's pretty well. You haven't, you're not there yet. <laughs> we'll all get there, you know, but Amen. you know, it's like, uh, I've been blessed. I had a blessed career, you know, uh, I become more of a Christian now because uh, I almost died two years ago. So long story short, we changed all the flights. We waited a day on the way home. I bleed on the plane, right? A doctor on the plane puts up an IV. I got an IV on the plane. Doctor told the pilot, if you don't land this plane somewhere, this guy's going to bleed out on your, on your watch. He's a famous drummer. It's going to be all over the news and your fault. Wow. So they geared off. They veered off and dropped me and my brother off in the Azores. You know where the Azores is? Not really. In the middle of nowhere, under Greenland. In the middle of nowhere. <laughs> under Greenland. Okay. Okay. okay? <laughs> under Greenland. I'm in a hospital. They spoke Portuguese. Okay. okay? They didn't even have an airport. They had to land at a, 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 a military base of some sort. So I'm in there for three days, and finally my wife got me a, um, a medical airlift out. The closest place is back to Europe, to Paris. I went all the way back to Europe with my brother in, in Paris in a, in a little Learjet medical air, airplane, right, with a medical team. I get back there. My nose is packed. While I'm in, Europe, uh, in Paris, I'm getting a bit of a fever. They wanted to cut my face open, get to my nose. My wife said, no way. You got to go into the audit. They wouldn't listen. By a miracle, by a miracle, she got a medical ailment back to New York. When I was in the Azores, I, I, they knocked me out to, to pack my nose. I woke up in a room, it was all black except for a little light. I thought I died. And that's when I grabbed my cross, I started praying. Please, don't make me be dead, <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. Anyway, so I got back to New York after a big hassle. They took the gauze out and the doctor says, he may be mentally disabled because the gauze was infected, mm -hmm. right? In my nose. Mm -hmm. So 24 more hours I would have been dead. Wow. So I, they did the surgery again. That was 2018. In March of this year, I had another bleed. So now they come to the conclusion this vein keeps growing back. So that's why I'm not going to Europe or anywhere like that anymore. You know. So okay, anyway, so about you said Christianity. Yes. Speak. So so from from then on, I started reading the Bible every day. Yeah. I listen to it every day, every day, every day. I'm on my uh, fourth or fifth time now. And and I started going to churches, at Christian churches where the bands play. Like uh, down here, I just found a church down here. And they had electronic drums. So I just got them. They should arrive today. A D-drum kit from my sponsor for the church. You know, oh, nice. and I wrote a song called Jesus Forever. Uh, from Which takes some of the lyrics from that experience of when I almost died. Especially when I was in that room that was dark. You know, the light, you know. Can you, and, can you sing some of it? Yeah. Uh, um, oh, yeah. Hold on. Well, the hook is Jesus, Jesus, Jesus forever. You are the son of God Almighty. You are the, uh, you're sent from us, you're sent to us from heaven, son of God Almighty. We're, we're preaching, uh, 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 preaching our real, preaching our holy. I can't remember all of it. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you are the highest. You are the one that saved my life. I was in darkness until I saw the light. Now, now I'm here, you know, and Jesus forever. Beautiful. You know, is and I wrote it. I wrote it on my iPad. I, did, I played everything, drums, keyboard, everything. I sang it. And I want Rick Derringer to play on it because Rick's a Christian. 
and trying to get him to do it. It's like pulling teeth. It's unbelievable. He said, I want to do it. I want to do it. You know, and then I'm realizing he doesn't know much about recording in his own little studio. You know, okay. yeah. I, I sent him, st- I said, I'm going to send you stems. He goes, I don't know how to do stems. Okay. Send me a wave. Mm-hmm. Okay. I sent him a wave. I sent him again yesterday for the third time. Mm-hmm. He keeps losing it. <laughs> okay. You know, but I found this guy, this Christian singer in the church who is an unbelievable singer and keyboard player. And I went up to on the stage Sunday to see, because he had this, this rig, he's talking into mics, he's operating. He operates the whole thing. You know, he'll, he'll go into the mic and tell the band who have the inner ear, ear saying, hey, okay, let's vamp on A. And then he'll go into a whole preaching thing. And he'll do a signal and then they'll move on to the next part. And he turns the track down, turns it up, starts the track, takes out the click. I mean, while he's singing, uh-huh. I said, wow, uh-huh. I'm impressed. Yeah, he's got a tremendous voice. So I'm going to, I'm going to get him to sing on this track. Great. He I can sing it a lot that. better than me. Well, you know? I, I definitely want to hear it. I'm so happy to hear it. I will send it to you. Yeah, so, so much of what you're saying is uh, ringing a bell with me because, uh, uh, like this. Can you see this? Yeah, a candle. Yeah, man. The light, dude. Yeah. I believe this music that we play is about that spirit that's coming through you, me, all of yep. us. Yep. And I think that we talk about it. It's wonderful. I was uh, I'm with Greg Bissonette, who honored you recently. Oh, and yeah. I love Greg. He, yeah, he's the same. He's like Greg. the spirit. He's got the spirit. Yeah. I mean, Greg has got some, so much energy. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, talk about spirit. We had Ted Nugent on our show that I want you to do the other day. It was almost like we couldn't get a word in. I don't know if you ever see Ted do interview. He's like a bundle of energy. Took the guitar out and he's playing. He's making it great. You know, the spirit is in him mm-hmm. of, of music. I mean, unbelievable. I mean, he's he's a believer in hunting and, you know, being a free spirit, you know, and being able to do, you know, what you what you do. Like he'll. He'll kill animals, but he, he uses them as food. He doesn't just kill them for, for the hell of it. Then he, he, he feeds the animals. He, he like plants, plants trees and, and stuff that the animals will eat on his ranch so he can hunt them and use them for food. But he's an amazing, amazing ball of energy. Okay. Okay, yeah. cool. I mean, really- I'm, I'm from Kalamazoo, Michigan. He's from Detroit. We always yeah. heard the, you know, Ted Nugent and Boy Dukes. Yeah. You know, they were famous for their yeah. sound. Yeah. So... Yeah. yeah, I know he. I know he has energy because out of Detroit was coming. Mitch, Mitch, Mitch Ryder, Detroit Wheels. Yeah, they were hot yeah, yeah. At the same time. Awesome. Bob Seger was hot at the same time. Yeah, yeah, man. You know we mean? did gigs. We did gigs with all those guys. <laughs> we did gigs with Bob Seger when uh, with Cactus and his drummer had these two giant tom toms up here. With, yeah. They were made of air conditioning vents. Did you ever see that? Nope. nope. Yeah, and that nope. gave me the idea to do these overhead toms that I did with Ludwig in the in the seventies. Okay. You know, and that was like 1971, 70, 71. And it was awesome. He, it, the, the tubes came out and faced the audience, big, giant air conditioning tubes. Damn. And they had the head on it. So he'd Damn. go boom, and the sound would go like that, and right out to the audience. It was awesome. Oh, God. Okay. That was before Bob Seger had any really big kids. It was Rambling Man. That was it. Okay. You know? Yeah. Great time. I got to ask you just a few more things. Uh, Tim Bogart. Yeah, uh, he's a big part of your history, and he was known for being a cat. We didn't expect to have as much soul as he had. Yeah, in our time, we looked like a James Jameson out of Motown. The cat yeah. was like, 
But here, yeah, yeah. Bogart seemed to have like with you in the rock world bringing that soul funk. This yeah. is why you guys are like current now. Yeah. yeah. Think about him, man. Unfortunately, Tim is very sick now. You know, they they only gave yeah, they gave him uh, X amount of months to live. He's got he's got a cancer. It's terrible. You know, so he's like my brother. You know, and his his main guys, Duck Gun, Jameson, all the all the R&B guys. I mean, come on. When he was growing up, there were no Jack Bruce's. There were no there were no people like that. You know, there's no John Entwistles. You know. Who was another amazing player, and you know, we just listened to that stuff. That's what we we that's what we played to, you know. That's what we played gigs. I used to play gigs, and all the stuff we played was when the Beatles came out. I thought it was a joke, you oh, know. Okay. We used to goof on them. We used to wear Beatle wigs and and do dirty versions of their songs to the clubs, you know. And we used to play R and B and blues and and some jazz, you know? Well, I never played uh, jazz with Tim, but when I joined the Vanilla Fudge, we did all, you know, Little Anthony Imperial. So I think I'm going out of my head. Oh man, incredible. It's Growing incredible. Temptations, uh, yes. Entry Pout to Beg, yes. I mean, all that stuff. We did all yes. that James Brown stuff, yes. and that's all we played. Mm -hmm. All our teenage years growing up. Mm -hmm. uh, Isley Brothers, you know? Yep. Do you love me? The contours, you know, right, that's right. all that stuff, you know. That's and then, beautiful music. And then when, you know, after we made it, then it started becoming really cool. You had Sly, you had Tower Power, you had all these different uh, uh, so R&B rock bands that came out, you know. And, uh, you know, then it was really cool. But me and Tim were like, we were like, like that. I mean, we didn't even have to think about when we played. We just played and... You know, I do a film. and Tim knew what I was doing it. He joined right in. He was he he knew what I was gonna do almost. You know. I often had to tell Tim, Tim, you need to calm down a little bit because you do such stuff that's so out there that if you're playing out there all the time, people don't realize how out there it is unless you come back to something. Mm -hmm. You know, like if you're playing boom, 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 you know, rather than being do it all the time, because that's what he started doing. He started overplaying a little bit. Okay, you know? I got you. I got you. You know, but you. but he was inspiration to many, many, many bass players. Did you enjoy the rock trio, him, yourself, and Beck? That that kind I of space. It. I loved it. Yeah, I loved yeah. it. Yeah. You know, matter of fact, when we played the mix, Don Mix did the uh, Don Nix actually mixed the album and produced mm -hmm. it, and. When we heard it back, it was mostly bass and drums, and Jeff was in there, but it was very bass and drum heavy. So we said to Jeff, there's no hardly any guitars. He goes, yeah, I know. I told him to do that because I love hearing you and Tim play. Okay. I said, whoa, you know, we want to hear Jeff play more, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's it's good, but, you know, his guitar could have been a little louder. I got you. And then we could never do a second album. We could never get Jeff back into Okay, and we have a live album that we mix. I mixed with Jeff's engineer two years ago. Okay. That's supposed to come out. We're waiting for Jeff's manager to put it together. He's got eight new songs. Oh, okay. And, and three of the original are done live at the London Rainbow in front of 3,000 people. Okay. And it was unbelievable. And I'm mostly fronting the band, you know, from the drums. You know? mm -hmm. So that's what I always did. Talk about the independence. You know, I'm over there right. playing... 
four way time singing. Like there was one song called Blue Murder with my group Blue Murder, right? Okay. It was sort of like a uh, pretty shuffle where you shoot you check at the boom boom, you shake at the bomb bomb, and there's a shuffle on the right hand, hi hat, down down, you shake the down down, you bomb bomb, you know. So I'm playing that, we played on the record. We started playing it live, and I'm supposed to be singing the backgrounds with Tony Franklin, the bass player. They're screaming, do murder, I'm singing to survive. One more, so I started doing it. I started messing up the groove, and I said, oh my God, this is like a fifth independence. I better practice this. So I went home, and I sat there and practiced playing that groove and singing that vocal part until I got it. Because yeah. it was... It was difficult. Yeah, as I'm saying. It we was don't difficult. think about it because yeah. you're doing five things at once. Yeah. Five, five things at once. <laughs> I know. My wife is playing. She used to play piano when she was a kid. So she just got a, a Beatle book. We have a, a mini grand in our living room. So she bought the book she wants to play. And I'm really blown away that she could actually sit down and still read it. Read it. You know, I mean, I can't just sit down and read like you know, like that, you know, and she's playing it and reading it slow, making a mistake, but she's getting it. You know, one time I did a symposium at the symposiums at the end of the night, you know, we had Buddy Rich was a, a guest and Ed Shaughnessy and me and, and, you know, everybody would have a night to do something. So I had my night, but then they needed someone to do this other thing. I said, oh, I'll try and do it. And they handed me the sheet of music. It was like, see my arms disappearing. Yes. That's how long it was. Yeah. <laughs> I said, give the, let me have this two or three days before so I could look at it. Right. So I'm looking at it. I, even having it two or three days before, I, I, I couldn't do it. Right. And Shaughnessy came in that afternoon, put it up on the thing, didn't even, never rehearsed it, just looked at it once, played it right away. Wow. So that's Great reader. Yeah. Great reader, because that's yeah. what he had to do on TV every that's night. Right. That's right. You know, That's I mean, right. I don't read that much. I mean, I know how to teach it. I know the, all the I, I know all this stuff. I could I could read, you know, music like uh, an exercise and stuff. But to actually cut a show, you know, I'd have to work on that. So mm -hmm. I never really did that. OK. You know, you know. What about the magic of you and T.M. Stevens? I know you love T.M. Oh, I he's, love T.M. He's trying to get man. better now, too. But we, we send a lot of have, love. Have, I know are you, you in love touch him. with him? I can be from time to time. He's kind of convalescent. I don't know where he is, but last time I Cup saw him, strokes. it was weird because yeah. I, I played in New Jersey in uh, Asbury Park with Vanilla Fudge, mm -hmm. and TM came up to me. You know, he's always had the blonde dregs and yeah, all the colors. Yeah. <laughs> and he came up wearing regular glasses, like round glasses, rim. His hair was gray instead of all colors. And he was wearing like just a really, he looked like a bookworm. Okay. You know? Okay. And he said, and he had like the TNA stuff we did and the stuff we did together in his arm. He said, come on, hi, it's TM. Remember me? I said, yeah, I of course I remember you. Mm -hmm. And he said, yeah, you know, we did this album. Remember that? And I, I'm thinking, what's going on? And Pat Travis told me, he said, there's something wrong with TM. Like, this is like two or three weeks before that. I said, why? He goes, I saw him and there's something wrong with him. He's not the TM we knew. Mm -hmm. I said, no, I, I don't understand. So when I met him, I I rang through. I said, so what is it? Dementia? What's wrong with him? You know? Well, I don't know everything. I just know you suffered some stroke. 
and oh, yeah, affected him. So he's kind of like living. When you talk to him, he'll always say the same story over and over again. Oh, you know, you know what I mean? Yeah, but exactly. I love him so much because he I love him. He's like a great bass, bass player, man. He's a so, great bass player. I know you love him. I have to. I got to mention him. You know. Yeah, I took him on. We took him to, to Europe with us, me and Pat. And the, the the worst thing about him, every time I use him, he never practiced. He never rehearsed. You know, uh, I had him doing when uh, um, who got sick? Somebody got sick. Uh, oh, uh, our keyboard player got sick, Mark Stein. Okay. And we, uh, our bass player in the Fudge Now, we replaced him. He also plays B3, and, and Mark was his idol, so he knows a lot of the songs. So he was going to play B3, and I asked TM to come in and, and play bass. I gave him all the songs to learn. But day of the gig, finds out that he didn't rehearse them. He didn't know them. Luckily, our road manager was a bass player, and, and he'd been with us a bunch of times. He said, I can play these songs. So he played the songs. And then we brought him up for the last number to play You Can't Do That, the Beatles song that we had on one of our albums. And we let him play that with us. And, you know, he got the audience riled up and, and singing and everything else. Yeah. And then we took him on tour with me and Pat and the same thing. And we did a DVD and he, he, he didn't learn the songs. Okay. You know, but what an amazing bass player and a singer. Oh, my That's God. Right. We had him write the lyrics to one of the songs on our TNA record. And they're great lyrics, mm-hmm. great lyrics. Mm-hmm. And he sung it. Yeah. I want to let you know that uh, Carlos Santana is now in the studio. I know he's sending his love through to you. He just arrived. Ah, yeah. He yeah. loves when you do this thing like them. Set me free, why don't you, baby? He loves that yeah. yeah, yeah, man. Everybody. Get my life, why don't you, baby? It's a bit high, though. It's a bit high. Your power, you know? Yeah, man. Yeah, yeah man. I know. I, I met him. You know, I've known him through the years. When I was in Australia once, uh, I went to see him outside. And he, so I was there. He said, hey, come on up and play. Yeah. I went up and played. I don't even know what I played with him. I played yeah. something. But, but we had we had fun. And I love his wife. Yeah, Cindy's beautiful. He's awesome. Oh, me, awesome. Me and Cindy go back. I mean, we did a clinic in, in Europe. And I was, uh, I was endorsed by Slingland at the time. And Slingland owned Gibson. Yes. So when we landed in, in France and we had, there was like a two or three hour drive to where we were going to do this clinic. It was a festival. So I had the, the Gibson bus, you know, that Gibson tour bus that they have, the hells the guitars in. So I had the European uh, uh, version pick me up at the airport to take me there. We happened to be on the same plane. So I said, how are you getting to the place? Because oh, I was going to, you know, I think somebody's coming to pick me up or, or I was going to rent a car or something. I can't remember. I said, look, I got this bus pick me up. It's just going to be me on. I want you to just go with me. Yeah. She goes, okay. So me and her were on the, on the Gibson bus. We hold there. And the whole time of the festival, the Gibson bus was parked outside. It was like our home to go to after, like, if we did the clinic, we want to go relax, you know, and have a sip of some water or, you know, Coke or whatever we're drinking, you know. Yeah. She's awesome. She's a great player. Oh, yes. Carmine, I love you. I want to let you know that um, we love you because you're a great person, good person, and you've given so much through the years. And from me to you, uh, I love the fact that you're funky, that you got power, that you are, you're a sensitive cat, and you love your music, and you love people. And you have been like an inspiration for me. I remember oh, when, I, when we that. first did Wired, you were the first cat told me you love Wired. You! Yeah. Out of all the cats in the world, it was you yeah. that yeah. told me about that. So I was like, yeah. I like this guy. 
I also remember seeing you in Florida with Clarence Clemens at the at the, the failsafe. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. That's the hard so, rock. Yeah, you're always rock. giving so much. So, yeah. you know, I just want to just give back to you because you've been really, really cool, man, all the time. Yeah, and I love I love Clarence too. He was awesome. Yeah. yeah. And also, I want to congratulate you on being Rock and Roll Hall of Fame uh, uh, on these years of 2013. Yeah, yeah. And then 2014 you. for the Modern Drummer. Yeah, thank and you. And Modern Drummer loves you so. Yeah. Here we are, man. Here we are, dude. I know, and I just signed all my books to Modern Drama Publications, so I'm going to be heavily involved in Modern Drama for the next 10 years. Okay, brother. That means well, I'll be 83. Ooh, I love it. Come on, man. <laughs> I have a new single called We Can Live Forever. I, I love your new album. I, I love The Real Baptism, dude. Ooh. That's, that's the one that's, I like. That's about Jesus, in my mind. When yeah. you hear it goes, boom, boom, I feel like it's John. Yeah, Did man. The love in the in the water and yep. it comes up and he realizes that inspired me. I said, I'm gonna go write a song like that. Oh I'm, I'm writing a new song, it's called A Game Breaker. Okay. About Jesus. I want to hear everything. I want to hear it too. Yeah. I, I so far I just have lyrics to the uh the title and a few lyrics in between. But I gotta find the right crew, but I want I use your real baptism as the inspiration for that. Well, if I can do anything with you, I'm here. You know, okay, man. And, and we got files. We can do we, yeah. we can do files. <laughs> yeah, we can do files. We can do files. Cool, man. Okay, brother. I'd love I I'd love to come. I'd love to come out to California and, and actually do something with you in the studio live. This is, our, this is your home. It's called Tarpan Studios. It's a great place. I've been here since eighty five. Okay, you're welcome anytime. All right, man. Love you, brother. Come on, God bless you, bro. God bless you, man. See ya. Well, 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 well. I hope you all really enjoyed hearing Carmine's insights. Carmine's thoughts, his heart, soul, patterns, the way he feels about life. What a great teacher and with all the wisdom he's got to impart to us. And most importantly, just admire his great life of achievement. You know, he and his brother put those drums down uh, since they were like little kids. And they've been great, great uh, inspirations for all of us. So big, big love to Carmine. God bless you, Carmine. All your endeavors, we're here for you. Modern Drummer loves you. Upbeat loves you. Norm Michael Walden loves you. The whole world loves you. God bless you, Carmine. Okay, God bless you. Happy, happy holidays, everybody. Peace out. D-Drum's story begins in Sweden in 1983. It was then that D-Drum created the Digital Percussion Plate 1, the first electronic drum pad allowing for dynamic playing using sampled sounds. Crowned as an incredible breakthrough in electronic percussion, D-Drum's innovative drum pads and sampling technology quickly garnered a large and loyal following. In 2005, D-Drum saw the beginnings of what would become the brand as we know it today. One of D-Drum's decisions at that time was to greatly expand its product line to include acoustic kits, snares, and hardware. And while D-Drum is proud of its history and its legacy of innovation, they want to be a company who could also serve the needs of today's drummer. D-Drum is a company of drummers for drummers. The team at D-Drum is like that drummer who still gets excited when they see a beautiful kit. So when you see the tagline, everything for today's drummer, what it really means is that they make the drums for you, all of you. The Dio's drum line is D-Drum's flagship production instrument, combining thin North American maple shells, bullet tube lugs, and beautiful lacquer finishes. With a highly pleasing sound and warm tone with amazing attack, Dio's maple drums sonically stand up to other professional drums at any price point. Go to ddrum.com, that's D-D-R-U-M.com, for more info on Dio's and everything else D-Drum. Hello everybody, I'm David Frangioni, and my guest today 
is Gary and Grafia from D-Drum, and he's going to share with us all the exciting things that D-Drum is up to. How great to have you here today. Welcome, Gary. Great to be here. How are you doing, David? I'm doing great. Thank you, Gary. So, Gary, you're back at D-Drum. What's the latest happening with D-Drum? Go deep on us. Give us the latest and greatest <laughs> in these products. All the drummers out there want to hear all the juicy details straight from the source. So, hey, I appreciate the question, David. Um, uh, as most people know, maybe they don't know, you know, we've had the Dios uh, Maple line in place. Uh, it was, uh, it came out, I believe, in the mid 2000s, um, went away, and then it was brought back a few years ago, which is a beautiful uh, lacquered finished maple kit that if you go to either ddrum.com or the Drum's YouTube page, or even on Modern Drummer, you'll start to see how these drums sound. It's an amazing, amazing maple kit. Um, and that's that the other top of your right line. now, um, our flagship maple kit. Uh, that's your flagship. One more time, David. That's your flagship. It is the flagship right now. Okay. Awesome. And yes, I've sir, heard the, the DS line is, they are amazing. Um, and then from there, uh, we do have the D drum dominion line. Another line that was, uh, when I was here last time was a huge, huge hit in the industry. We, um, we really hit a home run with that back in the, uh, in the late 2000s, and that has come back with new mounting system, uh, old birch shells instead of maple this time, um, and that is another amazing sounding drum set. I mean, some of the things, um, the simple changes that are made with, with brackets being moved and mounting system shifting, and uh, there's a lot of guys out there that know that the positioning, just the positioning of a tom on a tom arm changes the resonance of the drum, either the, on the top of the rod or middle of the rod. A lot of drummers out there might not know that, but you, um, it's one of the things we focused on with Dominion, especially with the, with the mount and the bass drum, that it's clear that the positioning needs to be in certain places. So we're really focused with these two lines on focusing on 100% what the drums sound like. They happen to look great, too, but the drums sound incredible. So we're excited about that. Um, this year, uh, we've just released a new um, entry-level kit, the D2 line. Um, uh, D2, uh, once again, was uh, very, very popular over the last several years. Um, and now we've upgraded it with a uh, new double tom holder, which is fully adjustable, um, uh, new badges, new wraps. The shells are great. Um, and, I mean, I think the price point in the market is $399, which is crazy. Wow. Um, yeah. Incredible sounding that's, drum kit. That's uh, a great Christmas me. gift for the up and coming drummer. Yeah, it, it would be. Uh, hopefully you can get out there and find some because they were like hotcakes when they came in. So um, <laughs> go and find some. <laughs> that's a good problem to have. But that's an awesome um, and also, uh, you know, one of the. It's a ridiculous price point. Yeah. One of the. um one of the series that often kind of, I wouldn't say gets overlooked, but um, we have a series called the Max series, which is a blended shell between maple and alder. Alder, as you guys know, I mean, in the industry, alder has been used for guitar bodies for forever. Uh, and it is a, a very resonant, uh, unique sounding wood. So this drum set, in fact, Carmen and Peace, he absolutely loves the Mac series drums because it kind of combines the qualities of, of a cutting like a, of a birch and the obviously the qualities of maple. So you have a very unique 
attack and an overtone that's kind of like maple, but it's definitely a little warmer than that. So it's, it's an amazing sounding drum set, the Max series. So we're going to do some things with that going forward as well and seeing how we can tweak that. And also, let's be honest, telling the story of, of Alder um, and telling the story of the sound of the drums is important because uh, and Modern Drummer has been around a long time. I, unfortunately, have been around a very long time as well. And um, uh, drummers tend to gravitate towards what they know. They gravitate towards maple. They gravitate towards birch. And once in a while, some other woods creep in like beech. And, uh, but when you start seeing uh, woods that they're not familiar with, like some companies use some, some woods that um, uh, I can't even pronounce, uh, and drummers tend to, ooh, you know, I, I don't want to go near that. So breaking in a new wood type into a drum line uh, is pretty difficult to do. Uh, because to them, it just sounds like, oh, they've, they're, they're just using some filler wood along with uh, maple. But that's not the truth. There's a conscious decision made to use alder in these drums. So um, guys need to check that stuff out. Uh, the Max Series kits are amazing sounding drums as well. So, Gary, tell us about the future of D-Drum, starting with your arrival there and what things are going to look like as it goes forward. Thanks. I, I appreciate you giving the opportunity to talk about it. So, you know, I was with D-Drum more than 10 years ago here in uh, the late 2000s, uh, left, went and did other things for other companies. And now I'm back here again um, with the help of, you know, Evan Rubinson, who's running the, running Armadillo Enterprises here. That's, you know, there's Dean Guitars and Luna ukuleles and guitars under the same roof. And um, he was uh, looking to move the brand to another level. I mean, the brand is doing well. Um, but he wanted to step it up. So he reached out, uh, we discussed some things and decided to come on board, which was great. So some of the great stuff that's going on, uh, here, we have a product development, uh, and a product roadmap that I'm, I'm putting into place here to really take the brand to the next level. And D-Drum has always been a great brand with great products, um, value products, uh, products as far as bang for the buck goes, even on the high end stuff. If you see some of the Dios uh, performances and uh, the Dominion series, which is an all burst series, amazing sounding drums. Um, and then when you look at the price point, you scratch your head and, and you say, how, how have they put together such great drums at this price? So what I'd like to do now is take everything that we've been doing and move it forward. So um, to really start tweaking some of the stuff that's in existence right now, configurations and maybe some missions of uh, sizes. Um, you know, we've been known for large um, extended bass drums and I think we'll still keep them in the mix, but we are, you know, as everybody knows, the trend these days is shorter bass drums. Uh, it went from 18 being standard to now 16 and 14 is the standard in the industry. So making some of those changes going forward, uh, coming out with a couple of new higher end drum lines from the ground up which is something that I think is going to be very exciting for the brand. Um, developing uh, new shell concepts, new lugs and mounting systems, um, and really taking the brand uh, to the next step. Because uh, even though the brand has been a steady, uh, a steady force in the industry for the last, since 1983, starting with the, uh, you know, everybody knows that d was known for the electronics back in the 80s um, at the time. 
the only electronic drum set that was considered by professionals a go-to for that. Um, so we've gotten away from that in recent years, um, but we're going to get back to that as well. So uh, what we really want to do is have people turn their heads and say, oh, okay, there's something going on there. They've got their stuff together. They're moving forward. And we're excited about it. I mean, um, thank goodness uh, with the management we have here, uh, I have kind of an open palette to do what I think is going to move the brand. Um, and that's, I mean, since... I came here to the office uh, every day has been focused on moving us to the next level. Well, it's just, it's so great to hear that things are going so well at D-Drum. Gary and Grafia, thank you for joining us today. Modern drummer listeners out there, check out ddrum.com. Check out this entire line of drums from, you know, the D2 at $399 all the way up to their Pro Dio series and everything in between. Uh, just exciting stuff. Got to check it out. Thank you again, Gary. Thanks, David. Appreciate it so much. Okay, it's time for the shop talk section of the episode. This is Mike Dawson, managing editor at Modern Drummer. And this week I'm chatting with my good friend, Steven Stetcher over at Doc Sweeney Drums. They sent two snare drums for us to review. One is a 6.5x14 8-lug East Indian Rosewood solid shell drum. They're calling the Vishuda. Gorgeous drum. The other one is a 5-net by 14 A-lug Tasmanian Blackwood with a solid show, and they're calling that the TB1. These are amazing drums, so we're going to drop in some demos of both of these drums later. But first, we're going to just chat with Steve about the company, the concept of how they make drums, and then a little bit of background on these two particular drums, and then we'll check them out. All right, let's get to it, Doc Sweeney Drums. Well, who is Doc Sweeney? Doc Sweeney is... Uh, my best friend. We grew up together, played drums together. He went off and became an educator. And when I built the company, I was trying to come up with some catchy name. And I thought, well, Doc Sweeney sounds pretty cool. Um, so it, it, the uh, named it after my best friend. Nice. So how did you get into building drums? Uh, when I retired from the corporate world, I had been a drummer all throughout those years and when i uh, decided to retire early uh i was looking for a hobby and just started you know uh spending more time playing drums uh ch checking out all kinds of different equipment and just one thing led to another decided you know let me do some research and figure out what it takes to make a drum and that led to one which led to more uh, one for doc as a matter of fact <laughs> uh, before we named the company and uh, yeah, I got such a kick out of it uh, and such an interest in the tonal qualities of wood as well as, as all the aspects that go into it, the bearing edges and the finish and the hardware. So, you know, one thing progressed to another and then we designed our own hardware components, the Lux and the DS1 strainer, and those all get done here in Carlsbad, California. So uh, that's what it was. It was more of a you know, keep yourself busy, <laughs> uh, which turned from a hobby into this little business. <laughs> right. Now, why do you focus on solid and stave drums and not plywood? Well, when I started doing the research into uh, drums, you know, from the Leedies and the, um, the early uh, Ludwigs and, uh, and things like that, and 
as well as Radio Kings. Um, there was um, a, a strong emphasis on the Solidwood and the performance of Solidwood uh, drum back in those days. And then that picked up pace when Craviato came back in and started to doing it. And so as I was experimenting with different drums, um, I tried some of Dunnett stuff and some of Craviato stuff, as well as DW and a, a lot of ply companies. And I just found the sound to be richer and in, in many cases uh, more resonant um, in, in the solid wood drums. And, mm -hmm. and I find that both in stain and in, in steam vent. Mm -hmm. uh, they, they do perform differently. Um, I think probably more resonant possibly in some of the stave designs and a more focused uh, round kind of note, if, we, if you will, on the steam vent side. Mm. Did you have you ever made a plywood drum at all, or did you go straight to solid? Yes, I have made a few, um, and um, you know they were fine. They just didn't seem to have the same uh, tonal qualities and mm. and depth of sound that I was getting out of the solid wood. So uh, after you know a handful of attempts, I just started focusing solely on the solid wood. Now, how do you go about developing and then introducing a new line or style of drum? Well, that gets into the research, like looking into the Radio Kings of the old days and the um, Ludwigs of the 20s. Uh, my focus has been on trying to recreate some of those sounds. And so that led to the development of the classic collection, which is mm -hmm. um, our take on the Ludwig super sensitive or the Ludwig drums of the 1920s, which were steam vent. Mm -hmm. uh, and, the, and the legend uh, was uh, a take on the Radio King and using the exact bearing edges because we were able to have an exact Radio King and one of those Ludwigs. And with computer, we can, we can actually replicate those almost perfectly. Mm -hmm. uh, once again, steam vent on both of those sides. And so that has been a very popular sound uh, profile, both those types of sounds, the the the, the Ludwig sound and the, and the Radio King sound with the really rounded bearing edges, 30 degree round over. So that has led to um, my interest in, we're, we're actually going to introduce the Legend Series kits and Classic Collection kits, uh, which will be coming out in the next three weeks. What we're doing on that, the very first one on the Legend Series will be European Beach. And it'll have the 30 degree round overs uh, it'll have a separate distinct lug design for it. And then the classic collection, the very first one coming out will be maple, and it'll be in that Pacific pearl finish that you've seen. Mm -hmm. it's, it's our take on the peacock pearl of the 1920s. Yeah. And we'll have the long two lugs that were custom, uh, customly built back in those days. So long brass tube lugs that are chrome plated and the 45 degree special round over bearing edges both on the take of the classic and in the, in the legend series. The other line that we've done uh, is the pure. And the, the pure sound, uh, the pure shell, I should say, is our attempt at building a shell with the least amount of drilling or glue. So it doesn't have to have blue re-rings, they're actually milled. So we have the milling capability now to take uh, 5 eighths of an inch thick board and mill the middle of the body out and leaving the bearing edges thicker, which gives it obviously rigidity, keeps it mm -hmm. in round, 
but allows us to eliminate any gluing other than the scarf joint. And we'd made it an eight lug design because it's eight like single points. So it has the least amount of drilling, the least amount of glue, and it is by far the most resonant shell we make. So it was, once again, it was experimenting sound and trying to eliminate weight and eliminate unnecessary glue to see mm-hmm. what we could come up with. And we're pleased with the results. Now, how did you settle on the, the types of wood that you use for those drums, the Pure Series? Well, on the steam bent side, um, we, in the steam bending world, there's certain species of domestic species that work and certain that don't. And so we've been focused on maple and walnut, which are clearly, um, uh, they're good to, for steam bending purposes. And we think good tonally uh, to kind of match what was going on back in those days. We've added uh, ash, uh, European beech and oak, all are, which are good at bending and all have their own distinct voice. Mm-hmm. Um, and we just actually finished our first few European beach. Uh, I think they sound great. I'm really looking forward to the, the full kit in the 30 degree roundover, uh, you know, seeing how, what kind of voice that produces for us. Mm-hmm. So, so most, most, of it, uh, most of it on the steam bent side has to do with the, the species' ability to take the pressure of, of bending. Mm, and then on, on the stave side, it's limitless. And so yeah. on this, and we also do, as you know, we're now uh, on the exotic side, we're doing East Indian rosewood, which mm-hmm. we think is exceptional tonal wood, and Tasmanian blackwood from Australia, mm. which is an acacia, and it, it is, bends well. So those will continue to do on the exotic side for snares. Uh, and on the stave side, we've looked at all kinds of different rosewoods and very dense woods to give us some really crisp uh, sound. As a matter of fact, I just finished one today uh, made out of Paul Rosa, which is a very dense hardwood from Africa. I'll send you a pic later, but exceptionally bright, very sensitive, um, very much in line with the density of a rosewood. So you kind of give it a sense of what kind of sound it produce. But we're always looking at, on the, on the stave side, uh, at the tonal woods that have been used in musical instruments, whether they're mandolins. We just finished a Spanish cedar uh, snare drum, uh, which is very, uh, uh, Spanish cedar is used in building those, uh, some of the higher end ones. And so we like looking at and experimenting with woods that, that in other musical applications seem to perform well tonally. Mm. And so with very little limitations on, on uh, what you can do with it because basically you're cutting 20 staves for a snare drum and they're each two and three eighths inch thick. And so you can pretty much get it out of almost any wood and eliminate knots and all the other imperfections. Mm. Was there any wood that you thought was going to sound great that just doesn't? <laughs> um, trying to think of some, some of the stinkers. Um, <laughs> You know, I can't think of anything that was really just terrible. Um, you know, I've, I've built out of so many different woods. Um, each, none of them had a really bad sound. Some of them had a, um, for example, popular. It had a much deeper, lower register than, than you can imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, and then some of the um, ashes and others um, in some people's uh, for, for their sound profile, maybe a little too aggressive and too harsh. Mm-hmm. 
but I haven't found any that I just went, oh my God, I've got to burn. This is fancy, you know, <laughs> firewood. So I haven't done that. What about the flip side? Any that really surprised you? Yeah, the some of that are that really surprised me, and it, and it was difficult to, to accomplish. Was East Indian rosewood? Mm-hmm. I just think it has such a beautiful sound. Uh, really, really like the, the, the Tasmanian blackwood. Mm-hmm. What I find in the domestic side, we we do myrtle, which I uh, think very few companies have ever used. It's a domestic from uh, Northwest. Uh, great tonal wood. It's used in a lot of high end acoustic guitars. I really found that to be quite excellent. And I'm really um, a fan of walnut. Mm-hmm. I just yeah. like the warmth and the roundness. And it's just it's such a warm, beautiful sound to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think the last one that um, really does sound uh, great, and I didn't, I wasn't sure it was going to make a good drum, was Spanish cedar because it's so lightweight and, in, and it has very little density. Mm-hmm. But it has such a warm, deep, sound to it and the shell's a half an inch thick mm. so that was one that it was an experiment to see you know because people have asked me about cedar drums and i just thought well i put lugs on it i'm not sure it's going to stay together you right know? <laughs> but uh at half an inch thick it does and it sounds really good the drum the shell itself weighs like as much of a news as a newspaper it's very <laughs> lightweight That's so the only, only thing of, of mass on it are the the hoops and the, and the lugs. That's good to know. Good for the gigging drummer, for sure. Um, yeah. Before we dive into the, the two new drums, can you describe the difference, what you hear sonically between the classic and the legend? Like, what are the sound profiles that you would describe? Yeah, um, I think you hear a much fatter, deeper sound with less sustain in the legend. I mean, excuse me, yeah, in the legend. Okay. And that's because of the rounded nature of, heavily, heavily rounded 30-degree bearing edge, mm-hmm. um, which were used in the 30s and 40s. So you have less sustain, um, a lot of depth to the sound, and uh, and I think you get a much brighter sound, uh, a little bit more attack, um, and a little more sensitivity on the classic because mm-hmm. of the 45. It's a 45 round of it, but once again, it's a much sharper edge. So you're going to get more sustained, more ringing, you know, mm-hmm. much more open tone. So one is kind of a closed tone, warm, um, very uh, Gene Krupa kind of sound, you mm-hmm. know, uh, on the legend side. And the other is a mi- much more bright articulate uh, and and a lot more overtones and overringing, okay. uh, which would be, you know, in, a, in any kind of sharp bearing edge. All right. So. Um, let's talk about the two drums that you sent for me to check out recently. This sure. is the East Indian Rosewood, which is a six and a half by 14, and then a Tasmanian Blackwood, which is a five and a half by 14. Uh, right. everything, everything about the shell is otherwise similar, right? 45 degree with round over edge, eight Correct. lugs. Um, and I thought they played very well together. I thought they were, I w- if you would have asked me to guess what the woods were, I would have thought they were the same. Um, I don't know if that if you have the similar um, faults about you, the sound you, you profile. Kind of, you got stuck there for a minute. I, okay, you were we, frozen. So, do you repeat that question? Yeah. So the sound profile of these two drums, I heard them playing very well together, almost to the point where I would have guessed they were the same species. I wouldn't have guessed they were two different species. Uh, was that the intention? 
that have these similar exotic woods or do are you hear these things very differently? Uh, I hear them differently. Um, and I think it would probably come down to uh, having them, you know, the same depth and, and, mm-hmm. and everything like that. Um, because the, the acacia is significantly less dense than the rosewood mm. significantly. And so uh, if you were doing, you know, the same logs on it and the same bearing edges and the same um, depth, uh, I think you would definitely hear a difference because mm-hmm. of the, the softer nature of the uh, blackwood will make it warmer, a little deeper. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas the density of East Indian rosewood is considerably more dense uh, than the blackwood. And you're going to get, I think, um, higher, uh, more volume out of highs and mids. Mm-hmm. with some good sensitive lows where the, the blackwood is going to tend to be more low and mid and very little on the high because okay. once again of the density of the wood. Yeah. So maybe your yeah, what you said was the, the depth is what might bounce them out to my ear. Like the deeper, right. the deeper rosewood sounds a little bit bigger and then the shallower blackwood sounds a little bit brighter than maybe they would be <laughs> compared side by yeah. side. Yeah. I, I definitely think that is the case. Yeah, I found... at, that was that was the very first one we built, and we've uh, we've got four more in production uh, of different sizes mm. uh, on the Blackwood side. Uh, we're really we're really happy with with um, the sound that came out of both of those species. Yeah, I'm still yet to make a decision on on which one I like better. They both kind of you guys every drum of yours that I that I play seems to be a perfect balance of everything in certain ways. Like I get the open brightness of a metal shell, but also the warmth and depth of a wood shell. And honestly, these two drums I thought were like the finest representations of that, that you've put out there so far. It was yeah, like I would agree well with you. Balanced. I think, I think depending on the heads you use and, and, and the, you know, uh, how tight you, 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 you tune the drum up or mm-hmm. down, um, you're going to get a really nice kind of metallic feel out of the rosewood. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it almost has a, has a, a little bit of a metallic sound to it because it's so dense mm-hmm. but then it doesn't you know then there, the bottom end still has in my opinion has the woody sound mm-hmm. to it yep. so you get you get that kind of tingy bingy whatever you want to call it mm-hmm. you know kind of the metallic start and then a, a wood finish i think is the way i kind of describe it yeah they're beautiful uh so you kind of already answered my last question like what's next you're doing pure not pure series kit classic series kits Legend correct, series correct. kits. Absolutely. <laughs> is there going to be a pure series kit down the road? <laughs> um, that that is probably not something we're we're not exploring right now. Okay. It's because the um, the technique used to manufacture it um, doesn't lend itself to going to smaller than fourteen inches. Oh, okay. We can do thirteen, but if if you wanted to do a 12, 14, 22, mm that process would be very difficult um, mm-hmm. on the pure size. So we're staying with 13 and 14 at, at this point. Although, you know, when we get bored, we'll experiment and we may end <laughs> up seeing a bass drum, you know? Awesome. Well, I can't wait to check out the kits when they're ready. But in the meantime, in this episode, we are highlighting the, how do you pronounce it? Vishuda? Yeah. East, East Indian Rosewood. Vishuda. And the TB1, which is Tasmanian Blackwood Solid Shell Snare. Um, We're going to drop an audio here later in the episode, but that's all the questions I had for you today. Appreciate it. Excellent.
All right, let's get to the demo. So the first one is the five and a half by 14 eight lug Tasmanian Blackwood solid shell drum. They're calling the TB1. Tasmanian Blackwood is a pretty hard timber. It's 1160 on the Jenker rating. This has 45 degree round bearing edges, chrome plated solid brass tube lugs, the proprietary Doc Sweeney th uh, throw off, which I call the DS1. This has an Evans UV1 batter, Evans 300s their side. And I'm gonna take it through the full tuning range. So check it out. Here is the TB1 by Doc Sweeney.
All right, and we're going to finish up with the Vishuda drum. This is a 6 snap by 14 8 lug East Indian Rosewood solid shell snare. This has a throat chakra etched into the shell that's very cool looking. This is a very hard shell. It is 2440 on the Janka hardness rating. It has 45 degree round bearing edges, aluminum arch lugs, the DS1 strainer. This one came with a Remo Diplomat fiber skin batter and an Ambassador Hazy which was a great combo. I feel it just rounded out the, the dense hardwood a little bit, made it sound very, very musical and rich. So yeah, these are two gorgeous, gorgeous drums. Check out the Vishuda, check out the TB1, go to their website, Doc Sweeney Drums, check out more of what they got. This is some of the finest uh, craftsmanship you'll find. So here we go. This is the Vishuda. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week.
Thank you, everybody, for watching this week's Modern Drummer Podcast. Stay tuned for next week's episode exclusively on Podcast One. Until then, stay safe and healthy, and thanks for listening and watching.